A Texas law has destroyed abortion rights for 16 million women and girls in Texas and is being used by anti-women, right-wing political forces as a model for the rest of the country. But a new fight back movement is taking shape. Today, we'll also discuss the end of key pandemic relief programs, the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, important victories won by the struggle against the racist murders of Elijah McClain and Ahmed Arbery. Tomorrow marks the 76th anniversary of the U.S. occupation of South Korea, which has led to the permanent division of the peninsula. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's September 7th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Please make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, what's in store for listeners this week? Well, we have, again, a packed agenda. We're going to talk, as we mentioned in the introduction, about a number of issues, both domestic and international issues. But I think we have to begin with the noting the extreme irony that the country had off yesterday because it was Labor Day. You know, the U.S. capitalist ruling class wanted workers in the United States not to celebrate the real Labor Day, which is May Day, May 1st, and is celebrated all around the world. And even though May Day has its origin in the struggle of U.S. workers, workers in Chicago in particular, those who fought for the eight-hour day and whose leaders were then martyred executed following the May Day demonstrations on May 1st, 1886, even though that event is celebrated all around the world, but not here, only in the recent years has it come back. But the U.S. ruling class wanted to separate labor, American labor and the American trade unions from the rest of the world. So they created Labor Day, which is the first weekend in September. The irony is The U.S. government also gave a gift to the U.S. working class on Labor Day this year by cutting 35 million people, that is 35 million people live in households that are scheduled to have someone lose unemployment insurance benefits as of yesterday. So when you think about families that total 35 million people, and these are big cuts, that's almost 10% of the U.S. population is affected by the profound elimination of unemployment insurance benefits, even at the moment that the Delta variant of COVID-19 is rampaging throughout the country. So you have these massive loss of unemployment benefits. 
6.8 million families now facing eviction because by a five to four margin, the Supreme Court decided that landlord rights come in front of workers' rights, tenants' rights, the rights to housing. Millions of children will be evicted unless the struggle extends the moratorium or re-extends it or ends up canceling the rent, which is the bigger, more far-reaching demand. In addition to those families facing eviction, there are another 2 million families who, quote, own their home. I put air quotes around own their home because the homes are really owned by the banks and people are paying 30-year-long mortgages and they can't keep their mortgage payments up. And the forbearance program is ending for 2 million families. So those families, too, are likely to be evicted through foreclosure from their homes. At the same time, as of August 23rd, 2021, two weeks ago, the U.S. billionaires are 62% richer since the beginning of COVID-19, 62% richer, and their wealth increase is up by $1.8 trillion. The number of billionaires has also increased. At the beginning of the pandemic, there were a little bit over 600 billionaires in the United States. There were 614 people in the United States who had 10-figure bank accounts, meaning that they are billionaires. And remember, a billion is a thousand millions. But as of August, as of this August, as of a month ago, that number went up from 614 to 708 billionaires. So we have a real crisis for a big part of the working class in the United States. And at the same time, we have extreme weather events, and we're going to talk about that more during the show. Hurricane Ida, we're talking to people in the South, in Georgia, in Alabama, in Louisiana, people in New York City where Hurricane Ida took a huge toll. We have a situation where there are cascading multiple crises, in a way, a perfect storm of economic and social problems that come out of capitalism or capitalism's failures. All of that's happening at once. And at the same time, the right wing in America, in the United States, is focused not on helping workers, not on bringing needed relief. It's focused on attacking the rights of women to control their own bodies the elimination of abortion rights in Texas. And, you know, the Democrats control the House. They control the Senate. They control the White House. They have the votes right now to pass a law to overcome some of the defects in Roe v. Wade, meaning it wasn't expansive enough as an affirmation of women's rights to control their own bodies. The Congress can do that right now. But again, even though we see signs of struggle emerging, the Democratic Party is kind of, well, the Democratic Party establishment has pretty much of a ho-hum attitude. Anyway, Nicole, we have so much to talk about. It's domestic, it's international. Why don't we begin, though, with the struggle in Texas, because it's not just Texas. It's a struggle for women's rights, to defend women's rights all over the country. Most listeners have probably already heard about this that happened last week, but I want to go into some of the details and what it means for women in Texas. So the Texas law that the Supreme Court decided not to address last week 
you know, it was a really horrendous and really sneaky law that will result in the deaths of women who need abortions. It will also put doctors out of business. And it, I think, will make right wing think tanks even wealthier. We'll get into that a little bit in a minute. But I think those will be some of the main consequences, which are huge consequences. After many unconstitutional laws from Texas over the years banning abortions in various ways have gotten overturned by the Supreme Court, some examples are only doctors who could see patients at certain types of hospitals could give abortions or only places with certain types of funding could give abortions, etc. Those types of examples. After many of those types of unconstitutional laws, this Texas law banned abortions by outsourcing the enforcement of the ban from public officials like the police, the judge, the juries, to literally anyone else. Anyone can sue someone who is about to give an abortion or about to get an abortion and win $10,000. Anyone can sue someone who is, quote unquote, going to aid and abet someone getting an abortion. So does that mean somebody who drives you know, their daughter to an abortion clinic? Does that mean somebody who opens the door for somebody going into an abortion clinic? The person who's suing has to put up the legal costs of suing, but they have the capacity to get that back if they win. I think that's why we're going to see a lot of, you know, these sort of right wing think tanks and, you know, wealthy, shadowy organizations who are going to be mainly the people doing this. But very clearly, the law is still unconstitutional because Roe versus Wade made abortions legal until the fetus is actually viable out of the woman's body. But the Supreme Court has decided not to rule on this law, meaning the law stands. In effect, really, the court approving the law, they would have you know, taken it up and said something else if they disagreed with the law. So this, of course, creates huge amounts of terror among the women who want to get abortions and need them as well as practitioners who administer women's health care. I mean, you know, your neighbor could be looking out and trying to sue you. It could be anybody at any time around any corner. Maybe it's, if you're a doctor, it could be the next patient in your waiting room is only there to see whether you, you know, perform abortion services or not. This ban is for fetuses around five or six weeks or more. That's a week or two after you may have missed a period. Many women have irregular periods. You may have gotten a test at that point, but you might not have. If you're working two jobs or, you know, you can't afford a test, maybe you want to see if you miss two periods before you, you know, try to go out to the store or get a doctor's appointment or what have you. So you may actually at this point have no idea that you're pregnant. And the reason that it's at this five or six week mark or so, it's called the heartbeat bill or the heartbeat law. And it's based on when the doctor can detect, I mean, I'll say the so-called heartbeat because it's not actually a heartbeat. I was reading into this a little bit today, and Dr. Saima Aftab, she's the medical director of the Fetal Care Center at Nicklaus Children's Hospital in Miami. I thought this was a really helpful way to put it. She says, it's actually a group of cells that will become the future pacemaker of the heart, and doctors can hear a little flutter when the cells gain the capacity to fire electrical signals. And by the way, the cells that we're talking about are actually still part of an embryo at this stage, not yet a fetus. This is still just an embryo. And the only reason doctors can detect this little flutter in these cells is due to advanced technology. You know, you're not listening with your traditional mechanisms to hear a heartbeat. It's just this little electrical signal. The technology is very recent to be able to detect that. The law includes a narrow exemption for medical emergencies, but there's no exemption for rape or incest, showing you, you know, while all women deserve a right to an abortion, this is just how far Texas is willing to go. And Texas abortion providers and reproductive rate groups have said that 85 or 90 percent of the procedures, the abortion procedures that happen in Texas happen after the sixth week of pregnancy, really driving home what I was saying about, 
you barely know you're pregnant, much less, you know, trying to make financial decisions, trying to raise the money to get an abortion in the first place. And I want to read a short quote from The Guardian, an article about the real life ramifications of this. Quote, researchers at the University of Texas said the law would particularly affect black patients and people living on low incomes. The main reasons that Texans are already delayed in getting the procedure are because they need to find the money to pay for it. They live far from the facility and time constraints for travel to the procedure because of work, school and childcare. When access to abortion is limited, it is likely unsafe abortions increase. So let me read that again. When access to abortion is limited, it is likely that unsafe abortions will increase. Each year, between 4.7% and 13.2% of maternal deaths are attributed to unsafe abortion, according to the World Health Organization. And they also said that nearly every death and disability from abortion could be prevented through sex education, contraception, and access to safe abortions. So this will, of course, continue to grind people living on low incomes, grind working class people into the dirt and primarily grind black and poor people in Texas, women in Texas, even further into the ground. Just really, really disgusting bill. And Brian, you mentioned how Roe versus Wade doesn't really cover or, you know, there are some limitations to Roe versus Wade, which these right wingers have been trying for years to try to overturn it. Their job is a little easier because of the way Roe versus Wade was decided. So instead of just ruling, yes, you know, a woman can make any needed decision about her body and her health, Roe versus Wade actually addressed abortion rights through the lens of privacy rather than health care. The state of Texas argued that states have an interest in the health of its residents and in protecting prenatal life. Again, that life is at this point a couple of cells fluttering together. Jane Roe and others argued that the ban on abortions at the time in Texas invaded an individual's right to liberty under the 14th Amendment and infringed on women's rights to marital, familial, and sexual privacy from the Bill of Rights, as well as they also argued that abortion is an absolute right. But, you know, two of their arguments were more about we have this right to liberty and we have this right to privacy. What the court ruled was that the Constitution does include a fundamental right to privacy that protects a woman's right to choose whether to have an abortion. But it's not a full right. Her right is balanced against the government's interests in protecting women's health and prenatal life. So they essentially say, yes, you have this right, but not really, not fully. So they specifically went in in Roe versus Wade and said abortions are legal, fully legal in the first trimester. No government body can restrict that. After the first trimester, the state could, quote unquote, regulate procedure. During the second trimester, the state could regulate but not outlaw abortions in the interest of the mother's health. And after that, when the fetus is viable and the state could regulate or outlaw abortions in the interest of the potential life, except when necessary to preserve the life and health of the mother. So, you know, Roe versus Wade was made on these sort of narrow legal grounds. It didn't just come out and say, yes, abortions are always legal, which is what it obviously should have done. And it had these sort of pieces where the, the fr first trimester is legal. The second you can, quote unquote, regulate procedure you know, which is where I think all these laws have come from that I mentioned, um, trying to overturn Roe versus Wade. But then once the fetus is viable, abortions are no longer legal. That was what Roe versus Wade did. But if you listen to that, the first trimester is fully legal. So this Texas law, you know, they're saying that they're getting around Roe versus Wade by outsourcing the punishments here to just everyday people to go ahead and sue. It's still clearly unconstitutional. I mean, Roe versus Wade actually says the first trimester 
abortions are illegal. So this is very clearly unconstitutional. And the fact that the Supreme Court let this go through this way and didn't say anything about it really clearly implicates the actual opinions of the judges on this. And there's another case coming up from the state of Mississippi that's on a 15-week ban that I think addresses this more squarely that really indicates where the judges on the Supreme Court, the unelected Supreme Court, where they're thinking. And so I think that's why it's so incredibly important, Brian, that that there are people mobilizing to push back on this because we've watched the Supreme Court justices change their opinions about things under public pressure. I mean, they're political animals, as you like to say, Brian. I mean, we can change that. We can change what's happening. And so I know on October 2nd, there's going to be a nationwide march. The Women's March has called for that. But there's a long time has been a lot of incredible organizing on the ground, especially in the South, where this is so restricted. So I will call to everybody to keep your eyes and ears open and to be ready to fight back and to start fighting back as soon as possible to really show the justices that this is not only not constitutional, but more than that, you know, these are our lives at stake. This will mean more women will die if we don't stop this. Yeah. Another reason why the Supreme Court should be abolished. I mean, it's a pathetic reactionary institution, you know, because the Supreme Court passed Brown versus the Board of Education you know, which desegregated legally or laid the basis for the desegregation of public schools. That was in 1954. The Supreme Court got a better reputation for a little bit. And then, of course, Roe v. Wade in the early 70s, that the Supreme Court, which has always been on the side of property, always on the side earlier of slavery, on the side of apartheid, on the side of all of the reactionary aspects of American capitalism, for a moment, its image was seen as a purveyor of something progressive. But when we think about it, and this is important for people who are looking at things through the prism of class politics to understand the American capitalist class needed to begin the process of desegregation in 1954 because the Soviet Union, which it was competing against on a global scale, could always point to the United States and say, how dare they promote so-called capitalist democracy when they have apartheid in the United States? But the American political system was so reactionary, Congress was so reactionary, the presidents were so reactionary that they could not use popular legislative means to end apartheid at that time. So the court stepped in and did the bourgeoisie a favor, which is to try to restore the U.S. image internationally when the U.S. was being indicted as a, you know, a racist apartheid system. Then the women's movement, which really became a massive movement in the end of the 1960s and early 1970s, part of that sort of ripple effect of the civil rights movement, then, you know, the court there too did something providing a concession, giving women the right to have abortions because it could never pass Congress because Congress itself is so reactionary and no president wanted to take responsibility for it. My point is all of these rights are not gifts from the Supreme Court, just like Social Security was not a gift from Roosevelt or the right to form a union wasn't because of the Wagner Act. Every right that we had was won because people fought for it and the ruling class eventually had to make concessions. And now because the struggle is at a lower level and because the right-wing anti-women forces have been on the march for the past 50 years, 
and our side, the progressive forces, have not fought vigorously enough. The ruling class now thinks they can take back this right that women want, women must have. It's a majority-supported position about abortion rights. They want to take it back. So the only antidote to that is to increase the struggle. That's what is on the agenda right now. And just to add one thing to that, I mean, the Democrats could decide to completely take it out of the hands of the Supreme Court, an act of Congress that would clarify once and for all that women have the right to an abortion is something that can be legislated by an act of Congress and therefore clear up the legal ambiguity that's sort of embedded within the Roe v. Wade decision. So again, this is something that could be done right now with no Republican votes. The Democrats have a majority in the Senate. They have a majority in the House of Representatives. They control the presidency. I mean, there's no excuses. There's no excuses. No faction of the ruling class can just throw their hands up and say, oh, well, it's out of our hands. We can't do anything about it. Let's just see what the Supreme Court decides. Let's move on to another story. Again, it's about the Supreme Court, but again, also, it's really about us. It's about the people. It's about whether we'll fight. As I mentioned earlier, 6.8 million families facing eviction because the moratorium was not extended. Two million homeowners facing foreclosure. Tens of millions of people about to lose homes, including millions of kids, while COVID-19 is rampaging and the school year starting. Hey, kids, guess what? As your school year starts, more of you are about to become homeless Anyway, Walter, this is another call to action. Yeah, so we had that unbelievably cruel Supreme Court ruling striking down the federal eviction moratorium that was issued by the CDC. They explicitly said, we value the right to exclude, the right of private property owners to exclude over the rights of people to have the basic essentials of life, like a roof over their head, especially during the pandemic. So now all eyes are on Congress. Congress is currently on vacation. I think that's ridiculous that Congress would go ahead with their September break, their fall recess, even though 11 million people are facing being kicked out into the streets imminently, but they're on vacation. They return September 13th and September 20th, the House and the Senate. And one of the first orders of business that they'll have to take up is whether or not to pass to legislate an eviction moratorium, a nationwide eviction moratorium. There are growing calls for that to happen. A significant number of Democrats have signed a letter to Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, calling for that to happen. And it seems like in a technical sense, the way that it would be possible is if it's included as a provision in the $3.5 trillion social spending bill, the budget bill, that is being considered by Congress and is a top priority, perhaps the top priority of the Biden administration right now. So this is a little complicated because the US system of government is ridiculous, but essentially, unless the Democrats are willing to get rid of this rule called the filibuster, which imposes a 60 vote requirement to pass most pieces of legislation, really their only shot at passing substantial progressive reforms is in this single bill, this one bill, which is a budget bill, technically speaking, because there's a process called budget reconciliation that Congress can use to pass things with a simple majority, but leave the filibuster in place. So there's essentially an exception to the 60 vote requirement if it's related to the country's budget. So there, I think, will be a real possibility of this happening only if there's major mobilization 
all across the country. If people participate in protests and rallies, if people do call-in days, if people do sit-ins, if people prepare to organize direct defense against evictions that are cruelly being carried out on, on families all across the country, if there's this sort of mass upsurge then I think there's a real chance at victory because this is something that's on the minds of so many people all across the country. The cruelty of this decision by the Supreme Court is just unbelievable. And the main obstacle, the main obstacle would be right-wing Democrats, will be right-wing Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema. There's sort of a handful of right-wingers in the House of Representatives and the Democratic Party that kind of stick together on issues like these. I mean, that is the target. Those people are the target of this mass movement, needs to be the target of this mass movement, because they're the ones who would be the ones effectively vetoing eviction relief for those millions of families. And so I think it's a winnable struggle but it requires the participation of thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people. One of the main organizations pursuing this demand since the beginning of the pandemic, demanding the cancellation of all rent and mortgage payments and all debt accumulated to landlords and banks is Cancel the Rents. You can check out their work by going to canceltherents.org or looking them up on any of the major social media platforms. They organize National Day of Action emergency mobilizations the day after the Supreme Court decision was issued, striking down the CDC's moratorium. And there are preparations underway by that organization, Cancel the Rents, to keep that movement going in the longer term. You know, debt is important. I want to come back and do a show soon about debt because debt is such an important element in capitalist society. If you have access to credit, meaning if you can take on debt and you're a capitalist, then that debt is really something that makes you stronger. Remember how Donald Trump said, oh, I love debt. I love debt because as long as the banks could keep extending him credit, even if the business was sinking or had sunk, even if it was bankrupt, as long as he had access to credit and could take on debt, it didn't matter really if he was losing money because that privilege of taking on debt allowed that capitalist, Donald Trump, or any of the capitalists to keep going. And in fact, when you think about what happened with Amazon. Amazon as a corporation didn't make any profit for many, many years. But it didn't matter because Amazon and Jeff Bezos had access to debt. They had access to credit. But for the working class, credit or debt is a lean on the little bit of money that we have or that you have, that workers have, the little bit of money that you have or that you're anticipated to have through wages or some savings, that means when you have to have any debt, that means the capitalists are going to make sure that they get repaid. And if you don't repay them immediately, they can take you to court or in the case of landlords, they can evict you. Debt in capitalism is a weapon and it's a weapon wielded by one class against the other class, by the rich against the poor, by the ruling class or the capitalists against the workers. Now, it's really important because, you know, we're always told or it's always discussed about 
people who are unemployed or people who are poor or people who are getting social benefits, that they are sort of living off of society. But if the capitalists don't make a profit but have an extension of debt or credit to them by other big capitalists, they're never talked about that way. They're never talked about in a demeaned way. They're never talked about as being sort of unsuccessful or lazy or living off of others. But that's exactly how the unemployed are described. That's exactly how those who get benefits are described. Esther, we started this segment talking about the loss of unemployment benefits to millions of families. When you think about, again, the number of people, the families who are affected by the cutoff of unemployment benefits, it's going to be about 35 million people living in families who are affected by the cutoff of unemployment insurance. Anyway, it's not just unemployment. Pandemic aid for the working class is ending or is certainly being you know, scaled back. Right. So I caught, you know, while I was away last week, I caught some of corporate media here and there. And it seemed like even the so-called liberal establishment media could not stop their drumbeat of criticism of Biden for exiting the criminal war in Afghanistan long enough to even give a flying whatever about the eviction moratorium you were just talking about being struck down or about how just on Saturday, pandemic-related unemployment benefits impacting between 35 and 39 million Americans were abruptly cut off. So 7.5 million people lost their benefits entirely. And then another 3 million lost, say, a $300 weekly supplement that they were getting on top of what are state benefits that are usually pretty small. So Economists are calling this steep benefits cutoff like a cliff for workers who still don't have jobs and no doubt are some of the same people trying to keep a roof over their head, like you were just talking about, and also feed their children. There are still 6.5 million fewer jobs than before the pandemic started. And of course, Friday's jobs report showed far fewer jobs being created than the Biden administration expected. According to the left-leaning think tank, the Century Foundation, I was looking at an article on their website, these programs that we're talking about, these pandemic unemployment programs, delivered nearly $800 billion in assistance to families over the course of the pandemic so far. And I'm not sure what kind of math these lawmakers here in D.C. are doing, but if they know anything about how working people live and even in reference to what you were talking about in terms of debt, all that money that was given to people receiving the unemployment benefits, it went to pay rent, it went to buy food, it went to pay car notes, it went to pay utilities, and also too much of it went right back to these mega rich corporations and to the banks that have you know made out like bandits during the pandemic. It went back into the economy. And with the economy still faltering, how is it going to miss $800 billion, really? You know, so there's an economist at Barnard College, Elizabeth Annanate, and she said in a New York Times article published on Monday that cutting off benefits now when the Delta variant has threatened to set back the recovery is a threat to both workers and the broader economy. She said, quote, we've got this fragile economic recovery 
And now we're going to cut income from people who need it. And we are pulling back dollars out of an economy that is still pretty unsteady, end quote. So to back up, remember that the federal government initiated several critical unemployment programs in response to the pandemic. And a lot of these were put into place with pressure from the left wing of the Democratic Party, people like Bernie Sanders and the squad, who are at least trying to hold up the legacy of like FDR, New Deal type programs and policies for working people. And so there were three primary programs, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program that allowed traditionally ineligible workers like gig workers to receive pandemic unemployment. That we thought that was great because people who are driving Uber, driving Lyft, or even musicians or artists who would have temporary work in a club or whatever could receive, you know, if they had the right paperwork, could receive this aid. And I should probably mention that it didn't cover everybody. So a lot of these programs, for example, didn't cover undocumented workers. So I covered on on the ground lots of protests and demonstrators by people who were cut out of even this type of assistance. But anyway, two other programs gave more federal aid to people already on unemployment, on state unemployment, because again, these state payments are very small. So the federal program gave these people additional funds. And then the third program allowed people whose state unemployment had expired to have additional weeks because normally it would expire in 26 weeks. So the federal program allows you to stay on your unemployment and get these extra dollars. So that $600 put into place last spring, remember, was reduced to $300 in the late summer or fall. And then when the American Rescue Plan passed in March of this year, it continued with these types of three programs at the $300 level. They weren't ever able to get the money raised to give people more assistance. And like I said, these programs, as well as all the other programs, ended abruptly for the work week ending September 4th, but they called the official ending on Monday, September 6th. And I guess the one other thing to say about this is that the Biden administration really hasn't pushed back and fought for these benefits. I read a New York Times piece that said, quote, privately, some administration officials have expressed openness to the idea that economic research will eventually show the benefits had some sort of chilling effect on workers' decision to take jobs, end quote. So that meant to me that Biden is bowing to these far-right pundits who have been complaining, as we've covered here on this show, that these benefits are keeping people from taking jobs when we know that instead issues like poverty wages, lack of quality affordable childcare in the U.S., the ongoing danger of the coronavirus and new variants are some of the more substantial reasons that people are not returning to work. And also, I'd like to do actually more research and reading on how the pandemic has really changed the way a lot of Americans think about work, how we work, you know, how we want to spend our working and waking hours in addition to thinking about wages, poverty wages and where we want to work and, you know, how we want to take care of our families. And finally, I want to say that typically, like on so many issues, Biden is not listening to the progressives in his own party. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, chairman of the Finance Committee, said in a news release, press release last week, 
quote, millions of jobless workers are going to suffer when benefits expire, and it didn't need to be this way. It's clear from the economic and health conditions on the ground that we shouldn't be cutting off benefits now, end quote. So anyway, that's some word from the progressive wing of Biden's own party. And in the meantime, he's not doing anything to turn this around. One of the interesting parts of this story is that in the mass media, general interest media, or in the financial oriented media like the Wall Street Journal or Financial Times, there was a very, very big expectation that the jobs report, the monthly jobs report that came out last Friday, would show that about 850 new jobs were going to be created and that this was a sign that the economy was really, you know, heating up or maybe even overheating. That was like the big argument. Would the federal government have to start to ease or pare down or taper, as they put it, quantitative easing, which is just the government giving banks money? Would it have to start to sort of taper down? But instead of 850,000 new jobs, the number was 200,000 new jobs, like off by you know a huge number, by four times. And it's an indication that the economy is not you know, in high gear, it's an indication that even though there are, quote, labor shortages, it's not because everybody is working and as a consequence, the capitalists just can't find the right number of workers. This story is far more complex. Our friend Eleanor Goldfield posted something on Facebook that I really, really liked. She had a graph and it said, solving the labor shortage in America. And then on one side, it's called the things that have been tried, quote, call people heroes, that's been tried. Government bailouts, not to pay workers, but to buy stock instead. Three, cut unemployment insurance benefits. Four, threaten no health care without a job. Five, buy all the housing and raise rents. Six, devalue worker savings via inflation. Seven, shame people who quote, don't want to work anymore, close quote. Next one, get retired seniors into, quote, volunteering. Or last one, hire kids under 16. And then on the other side of the graph, it's called not tried, the thing that hasn't been tried. And that has only one entry, and it's called pay a living wage. Walter, that's the issue. The capitalists are not paying a living wage because they would prefer the current status quo to having any diminution in their profits. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right that it's about a a diminution in their profits and not, you know, the eradication of their private property or whatever. I mean, it's really all about maximizing, squeezing every last dollar out of the working class. And the main way to do that is to pay them less, to pay them poverty wages, to pay employees so little that you know, you might have to work two jobs or you might have to, you know, move in with a family member because you can't afford rent. I mean, the low wages, you know, the low wage economy in the United States has become so central to the profits that the capitalists rely upon. And for the capitalists, you know, profits are important, but really the key thing is more profits. They want to make more money. This quarter's return has to be greater than last quarter's return. And then the quarter after that has to be even more. And, you know, if the CEO, let's say that they are 
a personally, you know, nice guy, they're an empathetic person, and they decide, oh, I'm going to pay workers a living wage. Well, they'd be fired by the board of directors the next time they meet because that eats into the profits of that corporation, which is the sole reason for a corporation's existence. So yeah, I mean, it sort of is colliding with one of the most fundamental things about capitalism, maximize profits at all costs. And it's also a statement, I think, about the complete irrationality of the whole economic setup, the whole capitalist economic setup, because there's all this unemployment, even though there's such a tremendous amount of work to be done. I mean, just to take one example, climate change. Hurricane Ida just ripped through the United States, causing devastation all across the East and the Southeast. And the you know, that is something that's an example of the intensified natural disasters caused by climate change. So the whole country's infrastructure, the way we produce energy, the way transportation works, weatherproofing, you know, building up the resiliency of key infrastructure to the effects of climate change, you know, that's like a historic task. It's a historic undertaking that the United States and every other country on the planet has to undertake. You know, the millions of people who are out of work could be doing that. They could be paid a living wage to do that with union representation. And it would be of tremendous benefit to society, but instead they're forced into poverty and idleness by the complete irrationality of this current system. There's three headlines I want to read to the three of you and just to start to wrap up this part of the discussion. And then I want to turn to the extreme weather events like Hurricane Ida. And Nicole, I know you've been following that story. You've been talking to people in the South. But here's three headlines. October 15, 2020, Newsweek. Half of American workers made less than $35,000 in 2019. Half of American workers made less than $35,000. Second headline from Newsweek, April 1st, 2020. Nearly 60% of U.S. workers won't be able to meet basic financial needs in less than one week under the quarantine. Here's a third one from two days ago. Ahead of Labor Day, 71% of Americans support the federal aid programs, the federal pandemic aid programs, the ones that are being cut. And Nicole, when you think about who's in Congress, who's in the House and who's in the Senate, you know, 67, 68 of the 100 senators are formally millionaires or multi-multi-millionaires. And it's probably almost all of them are really millionaires, but maybe they're concealing their wealth, some of them. But how many people who make less than 35000 how many individuals who make less than $35,000, which would be half of the U.S. workforce, how many of them are in the U.S. Congress? The answer to that is zero. You know, you can talk about democracy, but when half the people in the country make under 35000 and they don't have a single representative, in the Congress, it's really something. The only person I think who comes close to that would be Cori Bush, perhaps, because she was a worker, because she was poor, because you know she was even homeless twice and when she had kids. So maybe there's one or two exceptions, or maybe a couple, but in general, the 535 members of Congress, they don't represent this vast part of America's population the people who make less than 35,000. Anyway, let's turn back to, you know, the impact on this part of the population from Hurricane Ida. It went from Louisiana 
you know, Category 5 hurricane, the top. I'm here in New York City where I'm recording today. The day after the hurricane hit here, I went outside in Queens and there were cars strewing about on sidewalks and lawns everywhere because the flooding was so profound. The subways are not even fully back yet. I mean, the subways were completely down in New York City as a consequence of the flooding. Anyway, again, Hurricane Ida is awful. It's in one way a harbinger, but it's not the future. The future of extreme weather events is the present. Yeah, and before I start on Ida, I just wanted to add into this federal budgeting conversation, into the federal priorities. You know, you can compare to China, where not only did China lift nearly 100 million people out of poverty and actually declare the end of extreme poverty just recently. But another fun fact, very fun fact, an average of one new museum was opened every two days in China between 2016 and 2020. A new museum every two days. I mean, incredible gains for the Chinese people, incredible education and, you know, very basic needs being met and just so different from what we have. And workers are employed to build those museums. I mean, that's the point I think you're making, too, that in addition to the educational value of having this kind of construction, when you think about, you know, another fun fact about China is there's a new subway station opening in China every four days, I think. Now, that means the government has prioritized mass transit. It's prioritizing museums. I mean, here in the United States, the U.S. government, the only priority for the U.S. government The only consistent priority is death and destruction. I mean, the only part of the budget which is like, yeah, let's make this happen again and again and again is the so-called defense budget. Right. So let's go to Hurricane Ida, though, because it is so deeply connected that there's just millions and millions of people in the United States who pay taxes, who go to work and yet have nothing, who are not taken care of, who are not given even the very basic rights of living like housing and food. So I talked to somebody Evan Brannon, he's an organizer on the Gulf Coast with the Party for Socialism and Liberation. He's been organizing relief efforts, as has the PSL, for people who are hardest hit by Ida in the region. And he talked to me yesterday. He had just come back from Laplace, Louisiana. That's about 40 minutes west of New Orleans, right on Lake Pontchartrain. So, you know, a lot of really devastated communities there. So I'm going to play a couple of clips from Evan. Here we go. This is the worst devastation I've ever seen. And I live in South Alabama. I've lived here for most of my life. I've lived through several hurricanes, and this is by far the worst devastation I've seen. Just when you first pull off the exit into Laplace from the interstate, there's downed power lines everywhere. I mean, you look at hotel buildings, you look at buildings in general, and there's entire walls ripped off of them. The facades of buildings are torn off from the hurricane. As you're driving down into the residential areas, you see houses with roofs missing, huge holes in the roofs. And people are living without power. You know, these power lines are down. They're all over the street. Every stoplight is bent sideways. You can't even see, you know, they operate like stop signs, essentially. Nobody's seeing any relief whatsoever. These were the kind of comments that, you know, were really echoed. The fact that no one is doing anything. Like there are no agencies on the ground. He really echoed that throughout our interview. I'll play another clip. It's a little bit longer. There are a lot of different issues that people are facing. You know, I mean, particularly the main one is people have no power. And for Louisiana, that's a really serious issue to have. I was looking at the weather for Laplace, Louisiana, and the heat index was 100 to 105 degrees. And on the weather app, it actually had a warning and it said that 
you should like seek air conditioning for something like this and drink a lot of fluids. People don't have air conditioning if there's no power. Many people we talk to have been sitting outside for, they say they wake up at 6am and the first thing they do is they go outside and they sit in the shade anywhere they can find because it's cooler than it is inside their house because they have no AC. So these people are outside from about like 6am in the morning to like 9pm at night trying to cool off. People haven't heard from any federal agencies. They haven't heard from any local agencies, nothing. And, you know, people also can't reach out because there's no cell service. There's no internet connection. So they can't put out calls to any of these agencies like FEMA or even like the local governments. There's so many different issues people are facing. There's a lack of electricity. Any food that isn't already preserved goes bad. There's no running water either. When we were there on Saturday, many people we talked to actually just got back their water, but immediately pipe started to burst. So as we were talking to them, they said, you know, they're probably going to shut off the water by tonight. And then this last clip I wanted to talk about and play because there's also, of course, a gas shortage going on. In fact, somebody in the suburbs of New Orleans actually got in a shootout at a gas station. The gas shortages are extremely bad. But I'll just say that and then play this clip. This was something that really shocked Evan when he was there. The most shocking thing to me was that there's these police cars that just can patrol around with this like mysterious source of gas. Like I talked to people in Laplace and I asked them, I was like, what are these police doing out here? I see them driving around. All they do is drive around with their blue lights on. They're like brand new SUVs. And they said, oh, so you noticed that too, you know, like they've been driving around since the hurricane hit and they won't stop for anybody. They don't offer cold water. They don't offer ice. They don't offer any services. They drive with their windows rolled up in their air conditioning inside of their cars. And nobody knows where they get this gas from. You know, there are people that need gas for their generators so that they can have AC in their house or have a way to cook their food or, you know, anything else, have internet connection and contact people outside of Louisiana or maybe a relief agency. I mean, it's just really disgusting. The The death toll now rose over the weekend to at least 63 people from the Gulf Coast, but of course, also up in the Northeast. And, you know, Evan was talking about how many people are out of power. It's at least over half a million people still don't have power in Louisiana. The power company is saying many will be without power until the end of the month, the end of September. I mean, in this season, that's just deadly. And not only that, there are also seven nursing home facilities in Louisiana that evacuated their elderly residents, the people in their care, to a squalid warehouse where 800 of them were later rescued. This was to you know, avoid Ida. The health department then closed those seven nursing homes and evacuated more than five other nursing and senior homes over the weekend. So this is just adding to the death toll and yet more of these horror stories out of you know where we put our elders, where we put our you know, the most respected and venerable people in our society. And this is happening in Louisiana, but New York, as you said, Brian, has also been deeply impacted with huge amounts of flooding. You know, watching photos and videos out of New York is just horrendous. And, you know, several people have lost their lives in New York and New Jersey. It's just a clear sign that, as Walter was saying earlier, that this infrastructure is deeply, deeply needed. Indeed, indeed. You know, I'm, I've been in New York for a few days. I lived here for, you know, many, many years. And I have to say the number of homeless people in New York is shocking. I mean, there are people where I am, and I'm not far from Midtown Manhattan. It's just everywhere, everywhere. And so then the flood happens and, you know, power was lost. A number of people died in Queens. 
a lot of the people died in flooded apartment basements. I mean, who's living in these apartment basements? That's working class and poor people, you know, stuck together. A really, really profound sort of indictment of the system. And again, all of these issues go together. Extreme weather caused by climate change, caused by global warming, that's going to increase. If you're a worker, if you're poor, if you live in a coastal area, if you have no like real savings, like as we talked about, you know, so many people in the United States identified that they were one week away from complete and utter financial ruin during the quarantine, during the shutdowns and lockdowns uh, from COVID-19. And again, the government doesn't really have any responsibility to them. The government, in fact, what the government's doing now is just, as we talked about with Esther, cutting benefits. Anyway, it's depressing, but also it means that there must be a fight back. And it, when there's a fight back, as we say over and over again, if you fight, you can win. If you don't fight, you won't win. And so Esther, on the struggle against racist police violence and vigilante police violence, and the two go hand in hand, there have been some important steps forward. And again, as a consequence of the people's struggle, let's just talk about what's going on on that front. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about developments in the Ahmaud Aubrey case and also in the case of Elijah McClain. But, you know, I just wanted to follow up on what you and Nicole were just saying, because when Nicole was talking about the fight back against this draconian abortion law in Texas, it just reminded me of what you're just talking about. Because if you look at Texas in general, it's almost like this harbinger of what the far right would like to do all across the country, not just in terms of abortion, but when you look at the way that they are handling the power grid, for example, you know, I've seen news stories recently saying that the power grid, which we covered during the winter, is now hanging on by a thread during the excessive heat that is still happening there, right? They are the state that is passing this draconian voter suppression laws. They have cut out the money from their budget for contact tracing while the Delta variant is surging throughout the state and also put money, $2 billion, into border policing so that they can have more state police at the border and so that they can build their own border wall. So when you're talking about people not getting assistance with COVID, not getting assistance for these outrageous energy bills that we know that they're getting in this heat, having their votes suppressed, I mean, these are all things that they all do go together. And we have to look at them as part of this neoliberal project, this far-right project that governments Governors like Abbott in Texas and these far-right lawmakers all across the country are trying to put into place. And they have similar attitudes toward police terror. So the good news, if we want to call it good news, some victories we have, is there are two. First, Jackie Johnson, the former Georgia prosecutor, was indicted Thursday over her handling of Ahmaud Arbery being shot to death last February. And remember, that was the case of Ahmad shot while jogging near Brunswick, Georgia. That was the first case that infuriated so many of us leading up to last year's massive protests after the murder of George Floyd. 
So Johnson is accused of violating her oath of office and obstructing police by showing favor and affection to suspect Greg McMichael, who previously worked with her as an investigator. And the indictment also says that Johnson failed to treat Ahmad's family fairly and with dignity when she started this process of like recusing herself and handing off the case to at least two other prosecutors who also recused themselves, but not without first declaring that the shooters, father and son Gregory and Travis McMichael, were innocent and justified in making a so-called citizen's arrest of Ahmad Arbery. And also remember that as Johnson started this process of treating this murder as not a crime, the family of Ahmad had to appeal to the public. They had to try to get national and media attention because the killers were just allowed to walk away. And two months later, they were still walking free. And so the family did get national attention. At that point, we're talking about at the end of April. And then the video of his actual murder was released and went viral. And that attention from journalists, not the work of a prosecutor, you know, doing her job. That's not what got justice. Anyway, so she's been indicted. So violation of oath for a public officer is a felony carrying a sentence of one to five years while obstructing and hindering a law enforcement officer is a misdemeanor carrying a sentence of up to 12 months. And I'm reading from a Washington Post story quoting the Georgia Attorney General's office. And so that is one case that we're going to continue to watch. And then also last week, the Aurora police officers and emergency medical technicians involved in the killing of Elijah McClain were indicted in his death. That's officers Nathan Woodyard, Randy Rodima, and Jason Rosenblatt, and paramedics Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chikuniak. Each face one count of manslaughter and one count of criminally negligent homicide in addition to other charges. And the indictments come two years after McLean's killing. As a result, we know of prolonged struggle for justice in his case. And for those who don't know about his case, Elijah was a 23-year-old musician and massage therapist who in August 2019 was tackled and choked by Aurora, Colorado police before paramedics injected him with a powerful sedative. And Elijah suffered a massive heart attack on the way to the hospital where he was declared brain dead and then taken off of life support six days later. And there was renewed attention to his case one year later during the 2020 uprising protests against racism after the murder of George Floyd. And so the investigation, which returned these charges, was opened in June of 2020 by Governor Jared Polis And after these protests were going on. We know that it was a result of those protests that we were able to get these indictments of these officers because initially the local district attorney or law officials said that these police officers had done nothing wrong and there were no charges brought against them. Yeah, those are important advances for the struggle. Walter, the indictment of these cops and the medics who killed Elijah McLean. I mean, the man was, he went to the grocery store. He was coming back. He was apparently dancing. Somebody called the cops and said, He's acting strange. He's not violent, but he's acting strange. And like within seconds of having any contact with the police, they had him down. 
They were, you know, brutalizing him, then, you know, choking him. Then they injected him with heavy, I mean, he's a thin, small person, and they killed him. He was coming home from a grocery store. And, you know, activists and organizers were in the streets demanding justice all through 2019, after August 2019, when this terrible atrocity happened. But the demonstrations were pretty small. And then after the George Floyd killing and during the nationwide movement against racism took off, those demonstrations in Denver were like unprecedented. Denver and Aurora hadn't seen demonstrations like that. And they were endless. They constantly went forward. So at the end of it, meaning the end of summer, the DAs in Denver and Aurora turned around and they indicted Lillian House, Joel Northam, Eliza Lucero, Russell Roosh, Terrence Roberts. And, you know, in the case of Lillian, Joel, and Eliza, who were, you know, considered to be the top leaders of the protests, along with Terrence, they were indicted with so many felonies and misdemeanors. They were, Lillian was actually facing like 50 years in prison. And Joel was facing almost as many years. And Eliza was facing long prison terms. And Terrence, I mean, the cops went after the people who organized the massive peaceful protests. And at the end of the day, and this is a tremendous lesson for our movement, those charges have been repudiated. There's been a mass global movement in defense of those leaders of the peaceful protests. And at the same time, the police now two years later have actually been indicted. I mean, this is a demonstration that none of that would have happened if it wasn't for the power of the people's protest. And even after that power was demonstrated and the government tried to send the protest leaders, again, these were peaceful protests, to prison for the rest of their lives, the movement was able to come together, rally, defend them, and here we have this indictment. Again, not a finished battle. Nothing can give Elijah McClain his life back, uh, his mother, his family. I mean, the loss there, you know, that's insurmountable. But it's an amazing turn of events. It is, it is. And it's such an illustration of why endurance is so important in the mass movement. I mean, think about all the twists and turns that you just laid out that they had to deal with. I mean, there is this period in the struggle for justice for Elijah McLean where, you know, there wasn't a lot of attention being paid, especially not outside of Aurora, Denver, Colorado. But people kept fighting. And then this nationwide uprising, I mean, this monumental historic event came along and catapulted that to the top of people's consciousness where it deserves to be. And then you had, you know, to endure the period of state repression. The movement, you know, was continuing to take to the streets. There are marches, there are demonstrations demanding justice for Elijah, all during that period where this movement had to simultaneously fight these bogus charges, these ridiculously false yet extremely serious felony charges that the protest leaders 
were facing. You know, it would have been easy to get demoralized and give up in the face of, you know, decades in prison. And in fact, that's exactly what charges like those are designed to do. But people didn't do that. It made people redouble their efforts, in fact. And the struggle was able to come to yet another milestone with the indictment of these cops. And the struggle continues to win their indictment. And we actually had the chance to talk to one of those organizers who were playing a key role in the struggle for justice for Elijah McLean and was attacked by the state, hit with multiple, multiple false felony charges, Lillian House facing decades in prison. Uh, This is what she had to say. This was her reflections about how the struggle took place and why it won this milestone victory. On the morning of September 1st, we received the news that the state-level investigation into the death of Elijah McLean had concluded with the decision to bring a 32-count indictment against all three Aurora police officers and the two EMTs involved in the murder of Elijah McLean. All five individuals have received manslaughter and homicide charges in addition to a number of other charges. Now the fight will continue to turn these indictments into convictions, but this is a massive victory for the people of Aurora and for the McLean family, a victory which has taken two years of long and determined struggle to achieve. In fact, it was almost two years ago to the day that Elijah McLean was brutally tortured and murdered by the Aurora police. And, you know, initially in the initial months, it looked like this case was a done deal The Aurora Police Department conducted a sham investigation. The district attorney's office, led by Dave Young, announced that they would not be filing any charges. They said that, you know, they didn't see any cause to pursue charges, that it looked like Elijah may have even died of natural causes. It was a total sham and disrespect to the community, but that's what they thought they could get away with. And, you know, many local officials colluded along with them to make sure that the officers walked and the impunity was preserved for the police here. And I'm certain that these cops were sleeping soundly thinking that they were going to get away with it, that they would keep their jobs and that they would stay out of jail and they wouldn't face any form of justice. But the people here refused to accept this and continued to fight for justice in Elijah's case. And, you know, what really turned the tide and made the victory possible was the nationwide uprising against police brutality that ignited with the murder of George Floyd. All of a sudden, there were thousands of people in Aurora and in neighboring Denver who were suddenly activated. They were in the streets and they joined in this fight for justice for Elijah McLean. On June 27th of 2020, there was the first historic protest in Aurora, a protest where 5,000 people marched onto the main highway, shutting it down in both directions. This was completely unprecedented in Aurora's history. And then it was followed by months more of massive protests, you know, car protests, mass marches, demonstrations that demanded justice and that put a national and even international spotlight onto the city of Aurora, onto this corrupt and really blatantly racist murder, which the cops had been allowed to walk completely free. And so, you know, it was under this pressure that finally several independent investigations were opened into Elijah's murder. And this includes the governor's investigation, which reopened the possibility of criminal charges and which now concluded with these indictments. The movement has had to withstand really fierce repression. I mean, first it was physical brutality, 
then, you know, infiltration, misdirection. And, you know, of course, a year ago, myself and other lead organizers were arrested in a coordinated raid where we were jailed and hit with really extreme felony charges for peacefully protesting that could have put us in prison for up to 48 years each. And, you know, this was an attempt to terrorize the movement, to terrorize the community out of this fight and to get us to cave. But even in the face of this repression, the movement continued and showed determination and fought back actually to overturn these political prosecutions, as well as continuing to fight for justice in Elijah's case. And it is the determination and the unity and the organization of this movement which has forced justice in this case. That has been the determining factor. The people have demonstrated our power to come together and to hit hard against the powers that be in the face of injustice that we won't tolerate. And I hope that people who have been following this case, as well as following the case of George Floyd and the conviction of Derek Chauvin, are taking away the fundamental lesson here, which is that, you know, the injustice that we see around us every day is not unchangeable. There are many strong forces who are against us, who are motivated to preserve this racist and brutal status quo, who are motivated to protect the police. That's undeniable. But if we, the people, decide that we will not accept this any longer and we come together and we organize and we fight, then we can win. That is the lesson here. And that is what will get these cops convicted. And lastly, I want to encourage everybody to go to the website of the National Committee for Justice in Denver. That's denverdefense.org, denverdefense.org. There you can find an incredible documentary produced by Breakthrough News about the struggle for justice for Elijah McClain and the struggle against these false charges placed on protest leaders. And you can learn a lot more about how you can get involved in the struggle for justice for Elijah McClain. You know, I also think that both of these cases remind us that when we talk about police terror, when we talk about problems with the so-called criminal justice system, it's not just the police, it's the prosecutors, it's the DA, it's the all the people that get involved after the arrest has been made, after the police murder, after all these instances, both in Georgia, when we see this woman, Jackie Johnson, being indicted, the prosecutor in the Ahmaud Arbery case, and also the fact that these lawmakers, these criminal justice officials in Aurora and in Colorado in general had to be held account. They felt the pressure of accountability. And that was also important for them to feel as well as the police and those paramedics. Walter, let's start to wrap up. Liberation News, what are the big stories this week? Yeah, so I want to encourage people, as always, go to liberationnews.org and sign up for a newsletter at the top. One article I highly recommend titled Block Senate Bill 8, Legalize and Expand Abortion Access Now. This is about that unbelievable attack on abortion rights that the Texas state government has launched. And it provides a perspective on what we can do to continue to build a movement and fight back. There is also an article titled Cuba, the first country in the world to vaccinate children under 12. Cuba, despite being a besieged, blockaded country, has developed a first-rate, world-class medical system that's provided free of charge to all people as a basic right. And this is yet another major accomplishment 
for the Cuban medical system, despite all the difficulties it faces. Children under 12 this month are going to be starting to receive vaccinations in Cuba. No other country in the world can say the same. And then finally, I want to highlight a statement that was put out by the International People's Assembly and then reproduced on liberationnews.org. It's titled, Moroccan Political Activists Arrested During Protests Demanding Democratization. Leaders from an organization, a very important nationwide organization in Morocco called Democratic Way, have been targeted for repression, demanding an end to the dictatorial rule of the country's monarchy. It's an important statement of international solidarity, definitely in encourage everybody to check that out. Moroccan political activists arrested during protests demanding democratization. Check out liberationnews.org every day for new analysis and reporting from the front lines of the struggles nationally, internationally, and locally. I mentioned in the beginning of the show that tomorrow, September 8th, is the anniversary of when U.S. troops came to Korea and occupied the southern part of Korea. That was five years before the Korean War that took the lives of 4 million Korean people. We're going to have more discussion about that among this team. We're going to have more reports about Korea. I just wanted to let people know that on Wednesday, on the anniversary, I'm going to be participating in a Korean-based international war crimes tribunal that's taking place in Seoul, South Korea. I'll be joining remotely. This is on the 20th anniversary of an event we organized in New York City at Riverside Church. I was the co-coordinator of what at that time was called the Korea International War Crimes Tribunal. It included evidence and documents on civilian massacres during the Korean War. We had testimony from people in South Korea, a video testimony we gathered from people in North Korea, and the testimony of overseas Koreans who talked about what actually happened during the war. And of course, the war is not over. The U.S. signed the Armistice Agreement on July 27, 1953. But here we are so many decades later, and the U.S. refuses to end the Korean War. There needs to be a peace treaty. Sanctions need to be lifted on the DPRK. The people of North and South should be able to repair their relationship, which there's so much you know, interest in on both sides of the 38th parallel. We want to come back to Korea and focus on it in coming shows. I also wanted to mention that Thursday is the 50th anniversary of the start of the Attica Rebellion that ended with the terrible massacre at Attica on Monday, September 13th. On our show, The Real Story, we're going to spend the entire program talking about the Attica Rebellion, what it meant in the United States. It was in many ways a turning point in U.S. domestic politics very, very important topic. So we hope that you'll join with us on Thursday where we look back 50 years later at the Attica Rebellion. We'll talk there too about the killing of George Jackson that preceded and in many ways catalyzed that rebellion. Of course, our show tomorrow on Wednesday is with Richard Wolf, where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history 
with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.